Now, if you have a Bible tonight, you can open it right on up to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you're joining us uh, and you're visiting, you didn't bring a Bible, uh, you're welcome to use one that's just stuck right in front of you in the back of a pew. And if you look right at the index in the beginning and look in the second half, what's called the New Testament, you'll find 1 Corinthians and we'll be in chapter 10 tonight. For all our sakes, I'd like to just lay out the context once again of of what's going on at this point in the letter. So our author, Paul, planted a church in the city of Corinth, and they've been having a correspondence back and forth uh, at a distance. And this is one of a handful of letters that make that correspondence uh, that we know of, and it's one of two that we have in the New Testament, the other one being 2 Corinthians. So uh, it is full of both the concerns that Paul has that have prompted him to write, as well as the questions the church has asked that he's now addressing while he's writing them. And one of these questions has to do about a, um, a disagreement that's happening in the church in Corinth that revolves around um, basically this fact, okay? So in the city of Corinth, like most of the Roman Empire in the first century, there were large temples dedicated to local gods that have been kind of uh, wrapped into the Roman pantheon, okay, the Roman system of gods. And so, um, so there may be a temple to Diana and another one to, um, to Pan, and there'd be multiple temples. And in the Roman Empire, there was no separation of church and state, Um, They just kind of accepted all uh, religions, glommed them into that. And so what it means was those temples were not just a place of worship for the people who who focused on or worshiped those gods, but also a place where a lot of civic civic life happened, a lot of social life happened, um, a lot of economic things. Um, The temples by nature were the largest halls available. And so if you were having a big party or even a big meeting, renting a temple was a natural choice. And when you did so, not only would you pay uh, the priests of the temple, but you'd also offer a sacrifice to the patron god of the temple. It was just part of the deal. Um, And so what's happening in Corinth is some people are wondering, okay, all of these places where life still overlaps. You know, I'm part of the Iron Workers Guild, and we have a meeting there next week. Should I go? Right? I know that the feast that uh, you know, my aunt is having for a wedding is happening at the temple, and they're going to be sacrificing the meat to the gods before they serve it to its guests, should I eat it? Okay? And they were divided on this issue, and some were saying, come on, we know that the Roman gods aren't real. Right? We're not afraid of Pan or Aphrodite. And so since we know they're not real, there's, there's nothing dangerous about it. It's like going to a unicorn's birthday party. It's, it's irrelevant and imaginary. And, uh, and so that was part of it. And then the other part you have to understand is that Roman worship, uh, worship at these temples was embroiled with ethical behavioral choices that were not appropriate for Christians. And so they were generally places that were very gratuitous in their eating and in their drinking. Um, Not only that, but there was also a good deal of sexual immorality. Many of these temples employed a priesthood, which was actually prostitution. And so part of the worship was paying and having sex with a prostitute. And so this was the fringe context of all of these events. And so the second thing that this one group was saying is those things aren't really a temptation for us. We can be present without doing the things we're not supposed to do and everything will be fine. On the other hand, there were others in the church in Corinth who still remembered what it was like to be a worshiper of Pan, still remembered what it was like to regularly visit that temple, not just for social engagements, but because they identified with those gods. And so for them, it seems like stepping back into their old life. It seems like a... um, uh, it seems like it contradicts what they know to be true in the gospel, it, as if they're not living as they actually believe. On top of that, because they engaged in all of these fringe behaviors, they're afraid, naturally, of being drawn back into these things. Okay? And so this is the question that the church has asked Paul, and he's taken a long and slow time to answer. 
If you read through chapters 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10, he's dealing with this issue the entire time, but he starts through a side door and deals uh, with a, a general concept of how we make decisions about what we do and do not do as Christians. He starts there. It's not until chapter 10 where we are tonight that he really begins to answer, okay? So that's what's going on, and here's the last piece we need to know as we read the passage tonight. The verses that we're going to read tonight follow a very specific section that sets the need and the tone for what we're going to read tonight. What we saw in our study last week is that the beginning of 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, now in terms of idolatry, in terms of you who identify as strong, is this not being a threat, is it being no big deal, he says, have you learned nothing from the history of Israel? And so he walks through um, Israel's wandering of the wilderness, the, the space in the book of Exodus and Numbers between leaving Egypt and entering the promised land, and he shows that, uh, that sin was a constant facet of their trip, and consequence was a major facet of their trip. The period of time he takes, takes maybe two million people out of Egypt as slaves on the way to the promised land, and of the adults over the age of 20, only two of those two million actually arrive in the promised land. All of them, uh, Paul doesn't put it very gently, uh, all of the other ones were overthrown in the wilderness. Okay. So it's in that context that Paul has just said, you're acting like this is no big deal, you're acting it like there's no danger here, and he says, this can be tremendously dangerous. If I can limit it down, in fact, let's, let's read it and then I'll explain. Here's the examples he gives. Look again at verse 6 of chapter 10. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of their, them were, as it was written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by their destroyer, okay? And so he looks at this whole history and says, you're not being sober enough about this reality. You're not recognizing that sin, even though it can be forgiven, can have tremendous practical life consequences, to, to sum up what happens to Israel, God has more for them than the wilderness. And because of their sinful choices, many of them never actually experience it. Okay? So it's in this context that he's just laid this on the table and the fact that he's pointing this out to those ident who identify as the strong, who presume there's no danger. That he says this. Let's read our passage tonight, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Let's pray. Father, what we have here is both a gentle rebuke and a comfort. Um, but like most of the good news in the Bible, we have to receive the bad news first. We have to identify as needing the good news. So I pray that both would be accomplished tonight. Um, as was famously said by one preacher, Lord, I pray that you would disturb those of us who are comfortable and that you would comfort those of us who are disturbed. I pray that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, notice, especially in verse 13, the tone is one of comfort, right? When he says, no temptation has come on to you except what happens to other people. When he says, and God is faithful. When he says, you will be able to escape and endure. Those are words of comfort and encouragement, okay? We have to recognize why they're here. And the reason is because if you take seriously the story of Israel in the wilderness... You need encouragement. You need comfort, 
right? Now, I do want to deal with something, because even, even reading over the verses that we touched on last week, and then dealing with the, uh, the danger here of temptation, it's worth remembering that the world that we live in today has a tendency to undervalue sin as a category, um, to, feel, uh, to feel that at best, sin is not really that big of a deal, or uh, what you call sin and what I call sin is completely relative, and so we can't really talk about it being dangerous. In fact, it's very easy, I think, in our world to lead over the, read over these verses where it says, this is what Israel did and this is what happened to them, and feel nothing but, um, but uh, trying not to use too strong of a word, nothing but discomfort with that concept of judgment, right? It says that they grumbled and the destroyer killed thousands of them, and we go, really? For complaining? Doesn't that make God incredibly um, overbearing and arbitrary and judgmental in the worst sense of the word? Isn't he taking these things too seriously? But, but I want to deal with that um, right now before we go forward. So here's, here's the thing. If you're diagnosing what's wrong with a human body physically, and you go, oh, okay, so you're dealing with this, and you can name the disease or the condition or whatever. You can treat that condition without having any form of a concept of what health is really about. In other words, as long as you know here is the disease and here is the cure, you can just put them together and that's fine. When it comes to the human condition, us as individual human beings and us socially, it's not the same way. And, and here's what I mean. I mean that it's very possible that like when we look at political agendas, for example, we can both recognize an evil, but our solutions may just be another evil. And we have a very difficult time in our day trying to discern the difference because we're focused on the practical. We want a healthy society. We're focused on things like um, education. We need to educate people, but we don't have any vision of what healthy humanity looks like, right? And so instead of actually determining that, aiming, showing us what we're aiming for, we, we just have these practical skirmishes, even though underlying all of those is visions of the human life, okay? When the Bible talks about sin, when Paul here makes sin a serious ordeal, it's because it has in mind a perfect, healthy body, and it may, if you're not a Christian tonight, may not agree with the way that you see those things, but what Paul is doing here by unearthing the consequences of these things is pointing out that if that's true, just like you may have only gotten a scratch and you think, oh, it's just a scratch, there can be deeper and more nefarious things going on to the surface that have tremendously terrible consequences. And so the place where we're going to disagree, if you're not a Christian tonight, is not on this issue of is sin a big deal, as much as how do we define sin? If there's such a thing as human flourishing, then there must be things that hinder or even go against that. There just must, must be. If there's such a thing as a healthy human condition, there must be things that interfere with that, that are in, unhealthy, to use my metaphor earlier. What Paul is doing here is based on the vision that the Bible presents of what human beings are for, and we'll come back to this later tonight, saying, so these things really do matter, okay? So uh, the second thing that I want to point out is even if you recognize the authority of the Bible in telling these things and you recognize the reality of the God who brings about these judgments, it's still very hard to read through them and feel like you're in a safe and comfortable place. That's why Paul gives us our passage tonight. He, he first presents the problem, the difficulty, he gives us the warning, and then he gives us the comfort. And so it's kind of like sitting down at, uh, at a table for a war briefing and hearing about the danger involved and then walking into the armament and being equipped for the battle, okay? Generally, 
any human being, especially one not used to warfare in the first place, is going to feel the weight and the danger of those consequences, right? But once you get into the armament and you start to understand what you have at your, um, at your disposal, that can really change the game, okay? So that's what Paul is doing tonight. But the danger, the hidden danger, if you will, tonight is temptation itself. Whereas last week's passage was about the danger of presumption, this week he moves into the fact that temptation really is a thing, okay? And it's something that we're not always aware of the weight of or the possibility of or the consequence of. Now, as he does this, it's incredibly helpful because he rips away a lot of the mythology um, that just builds up over time about how temptation works, When he gives encouragements here, each one of them combats a deception or a lie we're likely to believe in similar circumstances, okay? That's where comfort comes from. Simply put, if there is such a thing as truth, comfort is always going to be grounded in truth, okay? You can't be comforted by unreality. And so he reacquaints us with the reality of these things. The first reality is already laid on the table. Sin is serious business and it has serious consequences. And now he goes, okay, however, here's the rest of the picture. Bad news and good news. Problem, solution. Okay. The first one we find here in verse 12. He says, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Now, before we talk about the clear meaning of that verse, let's just use the illustration of the people he's talking to. He says, therefore, you Corinthians who think that there's no big deal for you, that there's no danger, that you'd never turn back to Pan, that you'd never be drawn back into religious prostitution, that you're not going to give in and drink too much or eat too much, that you can be without crossing the lines. He says, anyone who thinks he stands should take heed lest he falls. In other words, he's saying that true security comes from alertness and awareness and not self-confidence. And I think when you say that, it's relatively obvious unless you're talking about yourself, and then we fall in this trap all the time, okay? Here's here's what he's trying to point out. He's trying to point out that there is a version of self-confidence when you say, I don't struggle with these things that makes you by nature not prepared, right? The idea is that... um, that if you think I'm all right and I'm fine, that could be true, but it's not guaranteed just because you believe it to be. Take, for example, the people who decide it's an okay idea to take this wild animal like a tiger and raise it like a pet, okay? Now, you're going to get more and more comfortable with that reality of, of this is just a really big cat, right? Uh, and, and it may be true every single day, but it only takes one day for that wildness to come out. Whereas somebody who keeps in mind that whatever I might think or however much I love this animal, I also need to respect it and recognize that its teeth are sharp and its claws are long and that its instincts are not pet-like and domesticated. That's where real security is, okay? And so what he's pointing out here. Um, first and, and foremost, um, is that instead of feeling safe when we're self-confident, as, as paradoxical as it sounds, it's actually much safer when we're aware of the real danger. Okay? That's the place of safety. Those who are alert and aware. Now, this isn't just a good reminder for us. He's exhorting the strong to say, hey, wake up. Can you really read about this entire list of names that might as well be put on tombstones and say, yeah, but I'm different. Yeah, but it's not a problem for me. Um, Very much what he does here is he summarizes what we learned last week, the danger of presumption. But converse of that, it also helps us to deal with a misunderstanding we often find in the Christian life which is that either the strong I see around me don't deal with temptation or what maturity in the Christian life will look like for me will be without temptation, okay? And so we're aspiring towards and we're idolizing those who are self-confident that they no longer struggle with A, B, or C. And 
Paul, by putting it this way, removes that entirely. And he says the victory over sin is not determined by self-confidence or your assessment of your own ability in, in particular. He says instead, be alert, be aware. Listen, if you read the Bible through and you focus on the biographical aspects of it, the stories of men like Abraham or like David or the prophet Isaiah or the apostle Peter, uh, you will discover a tremendous amount of them who screw up big time later in life. And not just later in life in the sense of when they're in their old age, but when they've been walking with God, hearing from God, knowing God, doing his will, and even working on his behalf for a long, long time. Okay? David is identified as a young shepherd, as a man after God's own heart. And I'm not going to take the time to unpack what that means tonight, but let's just recognize if the God of the Bible is there, if he's good and he's loving and he's holy, that's a label you'd like to have. But it doesn't change the fact that David comes to a place in his life where he commits adultery, being caught, by the way, completely off guard. We don't find David thinking to himself, you know what, I'd really like to have an affair. No, he's actually just out on his roof at night and sees a woman bathing and it's, he's caught off guard. Okay, we'll come back to that later. Um, but even there, after this huge debacle in his life, as he goes on, you watch as he makes terrible choices with his own children and then reaps the consequences of it. Here's, here's a very simple principle. I'll take it from the world of sports, and it's simple enough that even I can understand it. It's that the game isn't over when the fourth quarter begins, and it doesn't matter what the score is. Okay? If you start to play in the fourth quarter like the game is over, you're putting the game at risk. And so it actually shouldn't be surprising to us that we discover people at the very last second in their life doing terrible things. That's what Paul is pointing out here. Here's, here's the thing. There is security and strength, but there's also deception in our self-assessment of strength. And there's a sense where somebody who's walking with a walker is less likely to trip than somebody who just walks every day because the person with the walker knows falling is a possibility they're you know paying attention to what's going on they're fully aware and when things get even a little bit rougher than the normal terrain they slow down and take their time right and so here's the thing like I said not only do we have to watch out for this in our own life and thinking I'll never be tempted by that again I've never struggled with, in the, with that in the past, so it's not going to happen to me. I guess I'm just not the type of person who struggles with this, so it's okay for me to do these things or be near these things or be involved with these things because it has no impact on me. Okay? I've been a pastor long enough to know how many times people have been in that position and found themselves flat on their faces. It's tremendously common. And it's for a reason that we'll touch on um, later. But, um, but here's why this is encouraging. Because a lot of times we think our weakness makes us um, more vulnerable to temptation, right? We know that it's a bad thing for us, and so we feel like compared to other people, our weakness makes us more vulnerable to that. There's a sense, of course, just practically, where that's true. Where if you know that you literally can't eat just one, then you should probably not eat the one. But... Oftentimes that devolves into a bigger idea that really seems to think that we are at a disadvantage in our lives because of these weaknesses. Paul's going to deal with that more in this in, in the same way. Clearly, from Paul's mind here, being tempted is not the same as sinning. In other words, thinking that you'll know you've arrived in the Christian life or that a mature Christian life uh, or that moving forward in the Christian life means you'll no longer struggle is a wrong-headed way to think about things entirely. It's actually a dangerous place to be in Paul's mind. And so there's a major difference between, um, between I'm maturing so I don't give in to sin the same way I did, or I'm maturing so I do the positives that used to just be negatives, where I was 
angry, I'm now patient. That's what real maturity looks like. But it's not maturity to go, that's not something I struggle with anymore. That's not something that I'm prone to anymore. I'm now safe enough that I can dive into the deep end and be unaffected. Okay. Now, he, he, he starts to dig deeper into this, and that's what he says in verse 11. I want you to notice the first, um, first sentence here. He says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Okay. In other words, he says here, everybody is tempted. Temptation is part of the human condition as we know it in a post-Genesis chapter 3 world in a world where we've all been tainted by the decisions of our first parents, Adam and Eve. Now temptation is just a normal component of life. Not young life, not non-Christian life, not immature Christian life, human life. Okay? And I actually find this to be tremendously encouraging just in the simple fact that it's very easy to look at people that we respect or admire, or to read biographies and feel like they're in some sort of first-string condition, that these are A-class Christians, and we're always just going to be nearly B-class because we're tempted. Now, if you read better biographies, you'll start to discover that a lot, all, but even in the biographers uh, who do a good job, you'll discover uh, that a lot of these people that you admire made terrible, awful mistakes. D.L. Moody, um, who I bring up often, was an evangelist around the time of the Civil War in the United States. And so many people came out to hear D.L. Moody speak that the numbers of his big events added together over the course of his life is larger than the population of the United States. Okay? Um, and so there may have been more people in that decade who, who heard D.L. Moody than anyone us else in the United States until the invention of the, or until the widespread use of the, st of the radio, okay? Um, for just physical, actually seeing them talking, he is, he is a major influence, okay? Um, and through his ministry, many, many, many people became Christians, but, you know, during uh, one of those evangelistic crusades, he got in an argument backstage, and it got so heated that he pushed the guy he was arguing with down the stairs. Okay? And the thing is, we have a tendency to react a bunch of ways, all of them wrongheaded, in, if we were in similar shoes. One is, okay, I've got to cover it up. You know, we, we pull the, the older brother routine, you know, shh, 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 it's okay, it's okay, don't tell mom, right? And we do an adult version of that where we just try and quiet it so nobody hears about it, uh, and then we don't see it for what it is. We think that was out of character when in actuality the Bible says that was evidence of very deep character that finally escaped. That's what Jesus says. He says anything you do in your life comes from your heart. It's already there. As um, Pastor Chuck Smith, who started Calvary Chapel, used to say, stealing a horse uh, isn't something that horse thieves do, or sorry, doesn't make you a horse thief. It just proves you are one. Okay. And so sometimes we quiet it down, we deny it, we say that was out of character. Um, sometimes, uh, even worse than that, we cover it up. Like Moses, we make a mistake, and so we bury the body. Like David, we make a mistake, so we try and hide it through guile, uh, through, through, um, through basically, I mean, I might as well tell you the facts, okay? So he sleeps with this woman, Bathsheba, who's not his wife. She gets pregnant, and he goes, okay, how am I going to cover this up? I know. I'll bring her husband, Uriah, back from the front lines of battle. Yeah, that's right. He's one of his soldiers fighting his war that he's just cheated on with his wife. Uh, he says, I'll bring him back, and I'll get him nice and drunk, and I'll send him home so that he'll sleep with his wife. And Uriah has such character that he goes, I could never sleep in my own bed when all of my best friends are out on the front lines. So he sleeps right in front of the castle, just on the ground, okay? And so David goes, okay, this isn't going to work. Kill him. And so he just buries his sin to hide it. And we're prone to do the same thing. Or another thing that, that Moody could have done is he could have seen it as disqualifying and say, that's it. That's evidence that I should never be, uh, you know, it, it proves that I'm not worth being used by God in this way. I'm hanging up the towel and I'm walking away. Okay. What, what Moody actually did 
was he walked out onto that stage and he told the entire audience what had just happened. Okay. Now, what's interesting about that, I want you to remember that most of those people are there to hear Moody, not because they're Christians, but because they're not Christians. That many of those non-Christians are there not being convinced that Christianity is real and struggling with the same struggles that many non-Christians have today. Aren't all Christian hypocrites? And so it's fascinating to me that Moody, before he says, now let me tell you about why you should become a Christian, gets up there and says, let me tell you about what I just, the horrible thing I just did, right? And why does he do that? It's because he understands these principles right here, okay? Now, pressing deeper, when he says here that no temptation has come upon you except that which is common to man, here's the thing that we believe when the battle is fierce, when you're actually struggling with something you know you're not supposed to be doing, we believe that our temptation and the way that we are tempted is unique. We believe that we're completely isolated from humanity. In fact, if I can take the time to talk about this tonight, there are particular sins that we see struggling with as being inherently monstrous. As, as the fact that you have this particular desire makes you a worse person than I am, okay? Take pedophilia. There's a tendency to, to see that as a horrible thing, and it is. But we make such a distance between the fact that I'm tempted to have another cupcake and they're tempted to have sex with a child. And so we can look at one and say, yeah, but this is, it. I don't really want that. I'm fighting it, it's etc." But we look at that and we go, you're just a monster. How could you even want that? But the fact is human beings are broken. We don't always want good things. And uh, when he says here that no temptation has overcome you except that which is common to man, I don't care what your pet sin is. You're not alone. And it doesn't make you less human because you have these wrong-headed desires. That's not where the threshold is. That doesn't determine your quality and character. And some of the greatest saints in history, no doubt, have had some of the strangest struggles. Okay, but whatever you're dealing with, you're not alone. Now, with Moody, once, one of the things that I mentioned is, is when we struggle with sin, we have a tendency to want to hide it, okay? And the nature of it, especially, I mean, it doesn't matter really what it is. The more it happens, the less we want people to know about it because the more we're convinced of the depth of the problem. And so what inherently happens in that is we start to feel alone and we start to feel worse than the rest of humanity. And this can happen even with small things. Have you ever listened to somebody tell you about things they struggle with and they're just overcome by them and you're like, dude, that's not a big deal, right? Why is that perspective there? Almost always, it's because you can see deeper into the darkness of your problem, right? And so even the nature of sin, because sin is not just what you do, but what you think that you never get an opportunity to do, right? That means a lot of the worst, the, everything that's under the ocean level of the iceberg of your sin, you know about because you live in the depths, right? People only see a piece of it. But also there's this perpetuating need to deal with our sin, to justify it. And one of the primary ways we justify sin is through vows and secrets. And so we say, nobody can ever find out and I'm never going to do it again. Do you ever wonder how it is that major organizations, um, suddenly the whistle is blown and you discover just years and years of abuse and you go, why did they let that go on? Please recognize that nobody, the first time an abuse happens, sits down and goes, okay, our policy for dealing with abuse is to let it going on, and I don't care how many times it happens. That's not how it works. What they tell themselves is two things. They say, we're never going to let this happen again, and we can deal with it quietly and privately, and no one needs to know. And it happens again. And you think, okay, now they're going to, but now it's, it's something that you've known about and you let it happen again on your own watch and so the stakes are even higher and it compounds and it compounds until it develops this culture of secrecy. The only reason organizations of people do that is because individual people do that. And the great glorious truth that Paul is building this foundation on when he says, no temptation has overcome you except that which is common to man is simply this. 
that all of us are equally sinners. Okay, that's, that's the bad news. There are no good people. But because of that, at the same time, we can be honest knowing, knowing that whatever we have to share is common to humanity and as well knowing that that's not the final fate for us, that that's not God's destiny for us, that that's not where we're going to be left. Okay, and so this fatalistic view that says, I've always been this way, I will always be this way, is not true for Christians. Your final destination is perfection. You will be as Jesus is. So that gives us the freedom and the confidence to step forward and be honest, knowing both that everything I have to share is not that abnormal to humanity and that I'm not stuck in this position. Simply put tonight, once again, you are not a monster. Whatever it is that's going on. And so we say, my sin is unique. And Paul says, no, it's common to man. In fact, temptation itself, even Jesus experienced for the duration of his life, not just in, you know, that three-act play where he's tempted by the devil, but for the duration of his life, experienced temptation. Listen to the words of the book of Hebrews. This is what Hebrews chapter 4 says. Speaking of Jesus, it says this in chapter 4, verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession and listen to why. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so this one who ever lives to make intercession for us, this one who paid the penalty of our sins, this one who's available when we need him because he's a very present, time in help, uh, very present help in times of trouble, he can sympathize with our temptation because he was tempted in all things. Not only that, but as an added encouragement, he's the only person who was ever tempted in all things yet without sin. You have a lot more to learn from a victor than a failure. But here's the point. Just because Jesus was perfect doesn't mean that there wasn't a struggle. Just because Jesus lived a life and was so intimate and close with God doesn't mean that temptation didn't draw him anymore. Just because he did miracles and the miraculous and was the Messiah himself, because he was God, became human, he endured and experienced the human weakness of temptation. Okay? So... Temptation, then, isn't evidence that you're a bad Christian or a bad human. It's an evidence that you're human. Even Jesus was tempted. That's why, just as a side note, that Nikos Kazatsky, or the, the film that Scorsese made about Kazatsky's book, The Last Temptation of Christ, has that title. Okay? Um, I don't want to defend or even encourage you to read Kazatsky's work, because frankly, it's really weird. I mean, simply, just to, for one place to begin, he makes Judas a redhead. And that just seems unfair. Okay? But, but more than that, he does some really weird things. But the giant theme of his book is actually drawn from this concept. The last temptation, according to Kozowski, is as, as Jesus is dying on a cross, and he recognizes that he has everything at his disposal to stop this. And he could continue on and live a human life know things like marriage and children and all these things that are severed by the fact of that cross. But even in Kasatsky's uh, uh, heretical book, Jesus doesn't take that road. He has the dream, he refuses the dream, and he dies. Okay? He was tempted the whole way through. He struggled. He prayed in the garden, sweating great drops of blood. Father, if there's any other way, let this pass. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Do you know what that implies? It means that Jesus had a will and it differed from the Father in that aspect. He would rather not die. Is that that surprising? He was tempted to live. No temptation has come upon you except that which is common to man. 
Now, there's a lot of other encouragement that we can draw directly from that. Take, for example, the fact that if these things are common to man, that means that you'll find understandable or understanding advisors if you'll just look for them, right? If you bring that stuff out into your community, if you make it known, if you publicize it like Moody did, there are going to be people who go, you know what, that's a big struggle for me. Here's where the Lord has really helped me. But he doesn't stop there. He says, next, getting back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, no temptation has come upon you except that which is common to man. And yes, I'm going to read this verse over and over again because I'd rather you memorize it, so I'm just going to do it for you, okay? Not only is it common to man, but what does he say next? God is faithful. And here's another myth we believe when we're dealing with temptation. We believe that it's evidence that God is absent. We think because the struggle is so hot, it's clear that God isn't present. We think because I'm drawn to this and it's such a terrible thing and not worthy of God, he's turned from me already. I'm alone, not just alone among all humans. In the big universal existential sense, I am alone. And Paul reminds us of what something the Bible says literally from one side to the other, which is that God is faithful. And one of the things that that means is that when Jesus said to his disciples before he ascended, I will never leave you or forsake you. When he said, lo, I am with you always, that he really is present. Even in the worst seasons of struggle. When it says that he is faithful, which he'll unpack in just a second, um, it, it means that despite how you feel, God still loves you the way he did yesterday. God's still capable of delivering you as he did from your past sins and will do from sin's power eventually. He can do right now in the midst because he is faithful. This is repeated so many times, but I'll just point to one. Paul talking to Timothy says this, even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. It doesn't even matter what your track record with that particular temptation is. It's not like a frustrated coach who goes, I cannot, I cannot do this and leaves. He's faithful. He's present. And obviously here, when Paul says, don't worry, there's victory available in temptation, and then he points to God's character, it means that the weight of the battle isn't on the shoulders of your character. He, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, no temptation has come upon you except that which is, God, uh, which is common to man. Therefore, buck up. Therefore, try harder. Therefore, just find in you the power that you already have and make it happen. He says, God, God is faithful. The struggle with sin is ours. The victory is always God's. That's what he says here when he says that God is faithful. And so here's another trap that we fall into all the time. We think the way that I'm overcome, or going to overcome this temptation is I'm going to try harder. I'm going to starve myself if that's what it takes. I'm going to repeat this mantra. I'm going to whatever it is, and it ultimately becomes about us doing what we already know we can't do. Because if you could live a life without sin, then why did Jesus die? And the same Jesus who saved you yesterday is ready and willing to save you today, but the greatest way to stop that is to save yourself. Once again, as as much as that's a rebuke to the silly ways that we try and overcome the big problems in our life, it's also a tremendous encouragement because it means wherever you're at and however weak your character's gotten and however deep the struggle's gotten, there's still hope because it's not based on your character but on God's. God is faithful. Notice he he unpacks that faithfulness for us and he explains further. He says, not only is God faithful, but God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Now, maybe you've heard the, the Christianese phrase that God never gives you what you can't handle. That's not found in the Bible, and I would argue it's not biblical. As we just saw, inherently, temptation is not something that you can handle. 
all of us find ourselves in the same class as Oscar Wilde who said, I can resist anything except temptation. But God is faithful, and what does it say here? It says that God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your, your ability. Specifically, we should clarify, to endure. That's where he's going. Okay, not some inherent ability, not sort of spiritual muscles here, but your ability to make it through. Here's the point. God's not up there going, you know what? I'd really like to knock them down. I'd really like to destroy their life. So I'm just going to set this big wall that is insurmountable and unpassable. God is not in the habit of hurting Christians. Now, he's going to allow pain and suffering, and we'll see in a second, even his easy way out is hardly ever an easy way out, okay? But he hasn't allowed you to experience temptation to destroy you. He's not going to let things into your life that can't be overcome. And he says, um, he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. It's a reiteration, but notice here it says that he's not going to remove the temptation. Do you see that? It says whatever he's going to do, he's going to do it with the temptation. And so here's a prayer you should stop praying. God, help me not be tempted anymore. That's not the goal. And here's why. And this seems, once again, it seems counterintuitive. But God doesn't want you just not to sin. He wants to develop your character. And that comes through testing. And it comes through difficulty. And it comes through resistance. And so he doesn't want to keep you innocent. He wants to make you obedient. Do you understand the difference? Obedience means you have to struggle. You have to fight. Innocence means you just have never experienced anything different. Okay, what God is doing in the Christian life, he does even through things like temptation. And God only lets those things into your life because he wants to grow your endurance, because he wants to grow your character, because he wants to increase your track record, because he has greater and better things for you. Okay. Now, we didn't touch on this earlier, but I want to double back. The way that Paul is talking about sin here, yes, like I said with the Corinthians, implies that you shouldn't go looking for it. Okay. He says, hey, don't think that you can just waltz into a pagan temple and in enjoy everything you're supposed to without ever being in danger of doing the things you shouldn't. Don't think that there's no danger. These Corinthian strong people would say, I'm never going to walk away from Jesus. And he would say the same thing. Take heed, lest you fall. But, although that's true, and although we all know that if you engage in the same practice over and over again, it becomes habitual. Right? It doesn't matter if it's a good or it's a bad practice. Practice Every time we go around the loop is another binding of ourselves to our behavior. Okay? But, but what we've learned tonight is that temptation sometimes just comes upon you. It just happens. And I can't tell you the weird stories I hear about people who are like, uh, you know, I've, I've always had this component of my life, but I've never acted on it, and then I got propositioned in a bathroom. And it's like they weren't looking for that. When he says earlier here that no sin has overtaken you, the word for overtaken means to grab. Okay, And so the idea here is that temptation has just reached out and grabbed you. This morning, I went and got coffee at Stumptown, like I do most Sunday mornings, and I'm walking out of there, and there's a couple of dogs tied out, and I got bit. I was not looking to be bit by a dog right? That's the same concept here for grabbed. Sometimes it just happens, okay? But the correlation, the other side of that, is best put by Martin Luther when he says, you can't stop bats from swooping at your head, but you can definitely stop them from making a nest in your hair, okay? And so to bring that forward, what he says here is not that you'll be without temptation, not that God is going to deliver you from temptation, but deliver you through it. And so what it says is alongside the temptation, he will provide a way of escape. But even that escape doesn't get you away from the temptation. It gets you through it. That's why, notice how he finishes the verse in verse 13. He says, a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Okay. Now I want to say a few words about the escape. Okay. And one is, 
Just because you're escaping temptation doesn't mean it's easier than giving in. By nature, the easiest way to get rid of a temptation is to indulge yourself. Okay? Fight over, right? The word he uses here for escape is originally used of a mountain pass. And so imagine you live at the base of a mountain and you've got invaders running into the village and you go, okay, the only way I'm escaping is through the escape. Does that sound like an easy road? No. That's not the idea here at all, okay? But nonetheless, even if it's difficult, even if it's hard, it's there, it's present, and it's God-ordained, okay? And the second thing I want to say about this escape is I found just in personal experience that a lot of times this way of escape is open a lot earlier than I'd like to admit, and I drive right by it, okay? You remember that episode of Seinfeld where Kramer is, um, he goes to a car dealer, and he takes a car for a test drive, and they're out on the freeway, and he's coming up on the exit that goes back to the dealership, and he decides to go past it, and he continues to run this freeway loop over and over again until finally the car is actually on empty and running on fumes, and in the closing credits of the episode, they decide to just keep going anyways, and they grab hands and push past the, entr- er, the exit. There's a parallel in our lives, okay? See, the thing is that temptation is inherently progressive. It begins small, and it gets bigger. And not just in the, in the big sense of this used to be a little problem and now I'm ensnared to it. I mean in the, the general process, the cyclical cycle of temptation. And so most of the time, the first time you go, is this dangerous or should I be staying away from this? Or maybe this is a bad idea. It's generally pretty early on. And so what we do is we walk right into verse 12 and we say, no, I'm fine. I've got this. And we drive past the detour. Okay. What we expect, I think, oftentimes is that there's a wreck on the road and we drive past the detour and we're driving until it's literally humanly impossible to avoid impact and we expect angels to swoop in and pull us out of the way, okay? The detour is there intentionally for a reason. And so I found in my life, you have to recognize, like it says in verse 12, take heed, you have to notice the warning signs and you have to respond while you still can. I, uh, um, I have a friend whose who's big issue um, when Jesus really got a hold of him was lying. And his lying got so intense that it wasn't just something he did when he needed to anymore. He just did. And it grew so big that eventually, you know, he got caught in his own lies and the whole thing came crumbling down. And it was, it was a tremendously big relief to him at the time because he didn't have to juggle all these things and keep track of who he told what and how things fit together and come up with new stories. But he'd also developed this habit. It was his nature now to lie. And so I said, well, what do you, what do, you do about that? And he said, I blurt out the truth. He says, when, when a question is asked and there's a possibility to lie as quick as I can, I just blurt out the truth so that there's no reversing it and it's already on the table. That's what we're talking about with a way of escape. And I want you to recognize that sometimes the thing that makes it a hard way of escape is that it has to become public, okay? If you're dealing with pornography and you recognize that part of the struggle with that is the convenience of our modern world for pornography, can you imagine what it was like 50 years ago? You know, all you had to have was a car and a disguise and you could drive around, you know, drive across the city lines and buy your porn elsewhere and it was private and hidden, but it wasn't right in your pocket, right? It took effort. And so I know lots of people now who that's where their major struggle is. And so contrary to the phones that are in all of our pockets, they own a dumb phone, right? One that is archaic and stands out. And that means every single time they pull out that phone in a new context, somebody goes, why do you have that phone, right? A lot of times dealing with temptation involves bringing things out into public and enduring um, what may seem like embarrassment. And so you see how this all fits together? No temptation has come upon you except that which is common to man. And that doesn't just encourage us that we're not alone. It also encourages us to bring this stuff into the light. And oftentimes, that's exactly where the escape is found. Okay? But, but the point, once again, is that you have, to, you have to deal seriously with this stuff before it's too late. Paul's idea of sin being dangerous, like he says in 1 Corinthians 10, doesn't begin with Paul. Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. 
It's better to go into heaven with one eye than hell with two. And clearly that's hyperbolic language, but remember, and we have to remind ourselves because we're a culture that uses the word literally, figuratively, remember that something is hyperbolic not because it's not a big deal, but because it is, right? And so he's using extreme energy to, or uh, extreme imagery to make an extreme point, not a mild one. The one thing Jesus can't be meaning when he says that is, it's really not that big of a deal. You can just allow it in your life, no consequence, right? And so it has to be serious. It has to be a response. But nonetheless, what Jesus says here is that you can endure temptation by taking the God-ordained and made available to escape to you or for you. And that involves a lot of things, but as we've been hitting on over and over again tonight, a major one is the fact that God doesn't give you the Christian life to live alone. Jesus didn't die for individual Christians, but for a family called the church. And so one of the ways we deal with this is that when we're tempted, we call for reinforcements. Okay, when we're in the fight, we bring the fight into the public. And sometimes it means that we do things that are inconvenient or embarrassing or draw attention to things, what may seem unnecessarily, but that is truly and fully an escape and a better route than just sitting in the danger and giving in. But notice where he finishes tonight. He says in verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Now, one reason it says therefore right there is because Paul is bringing his argument to a, a close. And so I've been showing you where Paul is going and reminding you of the context, knowing the ending. But here he finally springs it on the unknowing strong in, the, in Corinthians. He lays this all on the table, and they probably don't realize he's talking directly to them. And then he says, so don't eat at the temples. And this is where he starts it. He says, flee from idolatry. And once again, there's some myths here that I want to point out. The first is, even though this idea of endurance means to stand up under fire, fleeing means something different, does it not? Okay. The great problem with the Corinthians is that the way they think about temptation is as a single line in the sand, and so I can go all the way up to it, and it's no big deal. And when Paul says flee, he inherently says, no, you should be headed in a different direction entirely. There's no reason for you to be there because the pursuit of the Christian life is elsewhere, okay? And, and the strong for, or the word for flee is, is a strong word. He doesn't say walk away from temptation. He says flee from it, run from it, okay? And so, uh, and he repeats this, he reiterates this. Earlier in the book, he says flee from sexual immorality. Later to Timothy, he says flee from these things and pursue righteousness. That's the other half. Run from one, run to the other, okay? But although he is just pointing out the specific here, therefore what we're talking about is idolatry, it's common to man, all these things, he's also getting at a point that I, I just don't want to do without, even if it's not intended here, okay? One of the mistakes that the church in Corinth is making is reducing idolatry down to merely what happens in the temple, or the fact that I actually ate or did not eat the meat, or the fact that I have a pan tattoo on my bicep, or these types of things. But the Bible takes a much more profound view of sin, and it says, ultimately, sin is not merely behavior. It's orienting ourselves towards anything that is not God. Okay? It's turning to something, usually a good thing, very rarely a bad thing, and saying, you give me ultimate significance. You make life worth living. You provide me with security so that life can't go badly. And that's what the Bible calls idolatry, okay? And so at the root of every sin, no matter how it manifests in your life, is ultimately that you've elevated something that not, is not God to a God-like position in your life. And so I want to take this exhortation tonight to, to kind of tie up everything and say, don't just flee from behavior. You you can find psychologists who, who will talk about behavioral sciences and these things. Christianity isn't just merely a change in behavior. It's not just building better habits. The thing is, even if you can modify your behavior and your heart remains the same, you're in no better of a condition, just more hidden of a condition. And the reason is because at the root is something you worship. At the root is something that has become ultimate to you. At the root is something that you now believe is God, even if you'd never give it the name. 
And so when he says here, flee from idolatry, the implication for us is don't settle for a change in behavior or a better attitude or biting your tongue instead of swearing another time. Dig deeper and recognize that the root in that is effectively a worship issue. It's an idolatry issue. Now, underlying this whole passage tonight is Jesus. We've already seen it by looking at the Hebrews passage, but I just want you to, sh- to uh, understand how, how this lays out. And so when he says here, no temptation has come upon you except that which is common to man, God became a man and endured human temptation for us in Jesus Christ. When he says God is faithful, it's Jesus who said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It's Jesus who endured, endured the absence, in a sense, of God, right? Who cried from the cross, why have you forsaken me? So that we could know with complete and utter confidence that God will not forsake us. Because that's been dealt with. The thing that divides us, the thing that keeps it stark, is completely removed. When it says here that he will provide a way of escape, ultimately, finally, even though there's the means of grace, like community, prayer, and the Bible, the grace always comes down to Jesus. He is our way of escape. And we don't believe as Christians that Jesus just saved us from the consequence of our sin and forgiveness. We believe that anytime we have victory over sin, it's Jesus who saves us. That's what it means when it says that God is faithful. And even when this final verse says, flee from idolatry, flee to Jesus. The greatest and best way to stop worshiping something unworthy of your worship is to worship the only one who is. The greatest way to not be tempted by the unsatisfying things in life that we look to for ultimate satisfaction is to be satisfied in what is ultimately satisfying greatest way to stop idolatry is to worship Jesus okay so there is a real danger in temptation and we can only say there's not when we're being hypothetical when we're just feeling argumentative when we keep things cleanly and fully on the table of of what's possible or how we decide what's good or bad or or this is all subjective or it's all relative you know morally or whatever But when you look at your own life and you look at your own struggle, that's where the reality of these things come to bear. And we all know how serious it is. And the encouragement I would give you tonight is that a passage like this is worth memorizing because you're going to forget these things. Because when the rubber meets the road, you're going to think, that's it. I'm completely different than others. I can never overcome this. You're going to think, that's it. I'm alone. God has abandoned me. You're going to think, there's no way I can endure this any longer. I might as well just give in because because I'm never going to have victory. You're going to think, okay, it's totally comfortable that I've hidden the behavior or I've modified it so I can leave my heart alone. And we need to be reminded of these things all the time. And they're comforting, but they're also truth. And there's deceptions that we believe, and there's deceptions that we tell ourselves And I'll give you one last scary piece of advice. When you start to walk this stuff out, you will find a layer that you didn't know was there, which is sometimes the only reason you give in to temptation is not because you don't have what you need. It's not because God is absent. It's because you want to. And that's just a deeper reality that God wants to deal with, but he can't deal with it until you bring it into the light. So let me read the passage one more time and then we'll pray. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Let's pray. Father, Thank you. Thank you for all of the facts that we don't like to think about, that you've reminded us tonight about our own particular choices and where we've seen the consequences and where the chains of our habits have felt so deep and dark that we can't say it's not a big deal. But thank you that you don't just wake us up to the dangerous condition we're in. You wake us up 
to do something about it. You call us uh, to, to lay aside our chains and you invite us into endurance. You invite us into escape. You invite us into victory. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to fight the good fight, knowing that you're present and that your good plan is to transform us into the image of Christ. Help us not to settle for where we're at and say, well, I'm nothing like I was then. This is good enough for me. I finally achieved the status of decent and I'll settle. But instead, Lord, let us recognize that you have more for us. And the world, the flesh, the devil, our enemies are trying to rob us of these good things. But you have promised to bind the strong man. You've promised to enter into our lives and to bring us victory. I pray that even this week you would demonstrate your faithfulness. That not only would we believe it and repeat it to ourselves, but that we would see it. That we would be encouraged in our fight wherever we're at. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.